Well, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, please. Ephesians chapter 4, the substance of our text is verse 30 to 32. So the last three verses of this section as we, as it were, dipping our toe in this little practical section. Uh, Last week we took up verses 28 and 29, and today will be verse 30 to 32. And and really, this is Paul's Ethics 101 course, and, and we're, just, we're just taking a few lessons from Paul's Ethics course, which um, really makes up the large part of the second half of chapter 4. Um, we will begin our new exposition in the book of Hebrews. We'll probably be in that for quite some time, probably a year and a half or so is, is the current projected rate, um, but uh, that will be um, in two weeks uh, So you can be praying for that as well. Well, let's go ahead and read uh, verse 25 to 5.2. We want to get the broader context um, of what we'll be looking at today. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those that hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Let's go before the Lord. Father, how we give you thanks for your inspired, infallible word that you have not left us alone with general revelation, but you have given your special revelation of which we cherish. And Lord, as we come before it now, we ask that your spirit would be applying this living and active word to each of our hearts, uh, applying it to the specific circumstances in each of our lives and the things that we are going through now. Lord, we know that you are faithful to sanctify and to grow your people. And Lord, we, we confess we are weak and helpless when it comes to these ethical imperatives that are before us, but we thank you for the Holy Spirit that dwells on the inside, the power that comes from the Spirit of God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless this time, that it would be good for your people, that it would be edifying and and building us up in our most holy faith, but at the same time, Lord, that it would be the life-converting word for those that are outside of Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of Ephesians, as we've said, the first three chapters address our spiritual riches in Christ, who we are and our identity. 
Um, chapters 4 to 6 is the practical section, the first 16 verses of how we should walk in this world, how we should walk in light of all of the wealth that God has given us. And then he comes to this ethical portion, and then he'll, he'll get to the, what's commonly called the household code, uh, husbands and wives and children and slaves and these types of things. So the, the last half of Ephesians is very, very practical Last time we considered verse 28, let him who steals steal no longer. So they must repent of the stealing and rather to put on, keeping with that theme of putting off the evil and putting on the good, is to labor, that's to the point of exhaustion with our hands. Why? So that we can have something to share with those in need. Likewise, verse 29 Letting no unwholesome, literally any, no, no putrid word come out of your mouth, a foul word. And, and it's not just cursing, okay? It could be slander, uh, being overly critical, telling a crude joke, being argumentative, backbiting, rude, disrespectful, boasting, gossip, all of these things. And instead of those types of words coming out, to what? Words that build up. Words that edify, words that strengthen, words that even as he says at the end of verse 29, literally breathe grace upon others. So that is the put off and the put on of that verse. And the more we fill our minds with the gospel, the more we fill our minds with the beauty of God and his work of redemption in our lives, the more natural these types of words will be to flow out rather than having other things on the inside Paul exhorts us how not to behave, but with each negative, he gives a positive. And that will resound true with our text today as we come to verses 30 to 32. The theme of grieving the Holy Spirit of God is in the middle of this whole section. So it's, it's almost like it's, it's building up to this, uh, that the, the falsehood, the anger, the stealing, the unwholesome words, what does all of that do? It grieves the Spirit of God. And then it descends back down, bitterness, anger, wrath, and all of these types of things, and instead be tender-hearted, and therefore to walk in love, as that section would end in 5.2. Fanny Crosby, um, a wonderful hymn writer. We sing her hymns. There's, she's written some 8,000 hymns. Isn't that amazing? That, that, that's fascinating to me. And the story goes that, as you know, she's blind, that, that she was not born blind. She actually could see. And her parents uh, took her to an eye doctor when she had an eye infection at a very young age, before even being a year old, I believe. It's just a couple months old. And that eye doctor thought he was giving the solution and the cure to that infection, but actually this doctor was a quack and actually made her permanently blind. So an eye infection suddenly becomes being permanently blind. And you would think if anyone has a right to be bitter, it would be her, right? But no. In fact, consider it's just the complete opposite. This is what she says. If I could meet him now, I would say thank you, thank you, over and over for making me blind. She considered that this was a gift that God had given her that helped her to write those hymns, of which, isn't it ironic, so many of her hymns talks about seeing and these kinds of things. Redeemed, though so happy in Jesus, no language my rapture can tell. I know the light of his presence does in me continually dwell And many, many other examples could be given. No, but Fanny Crosby knew 
that God is sovereign, he's on the throne, and she could write of such things and just not even allow her heart to go down that road. You think of others, many other examples that could be taken. Well, we're going to break this up into four uh, points today, brethren. Verse 30 will be two points that we do not grieve the Spirit of God, the motivation because you've been sealed for the day of redemption. And then thirdly, to put off all of those sinful traits in verse 31, and then to cultivate a tender-hearted, forgiving spirit. So first of all, verse 30a, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit dwells on the inside of every born-again, redeemed Christian. He dwells on the inside permanently. He doesn't come and go. He dwells on the inside. The third person of the Holy Trinity often neglected the person of the Holy Trinity. He's the third person. And notice Paul gives the very full name here. It's the Holy Spirit of God. And notice what he says. By whom you were sealed. The Holy Spirit is a person. As a few weeks ago, we we talked about this. It's not a force. He's not some force or something. John 16, 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. It is the Holy Spirit who, who comes in our deadness and effectually calls us, renews us from the inside, regeneration, so that when the, upon the hearing of the gospel and the good news that Christ died on the cross for sinners, and everyone who will savingly embrace him by faith can be saved. It's the Spirit of God that enabled you to respond to that gracious good news when it was extended to you. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit has feelings. Romans 8, 27. He searches all things. He's the searcher, right? He speaks in Acts 13 and verse 2. He testifies of things. He convicts the world of sin. He guides us. And ultimately, the goal is what? To glorify Christ, Jesus says in John 16, 14. And he, the Spirit of truth, will what? Glorify me. So the Spirit of God glorifies Christ. Paul makes it clear that apart from the Holy Spirit, you cannot be saved. He is the one that not only, as I said, grants life, but he sustains life. It's not enough for the Holy Spirit to quicken us uh, upon the hearing of the gospel so that we're justified and we're saved, but he actually sustains us and enables us to persevere unto the end. Every time you sin, you grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the English translations don't have the the chi that's, it's actually not a a, a new sentence here between verse 29 and 30. So it's so that you will give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It connects it to verse 29 and as I said, all the way back to verse 25. The phrase is, uh, this phrase is central in the section. It's a powerful motivation unto Christians to not grieve the third person of the Holy Trinity. What does this word grieve mean? It means to have intense, an, an, an intense mental distress, to be vexed or to be irritated, to offend or to insult. That's the lexical de- de- definition of this grieving. And so Paul says, do not vex the Holy Spirit. Do not cause mental, emotional distress upon the Spirit. Do not irritate the Spirit. Do not insult the Spirit of God. Matthew 26 
And speaking of Christ in the garden, and he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. So that Garden of Gethsemane scene where you see, you know, when we read of, of Jesus being so grieved and so distressed of, of the, the cross that he would be going to, incurring the Father's just wrath, is so grieved to the point to where he's sweating, as it were, drops of blood. That's the intensity. The Spirit is grieved because he loves us, because he wants our best. Our best is what he desires. It's, it's, he wants to promote holiness in our lives and, and happiness and, and with, with him dwelling on the inside. But when we put these obstructions in the way and fall into these types of sins, we promote our own misery rather than our own joy and happiness. Whenever you pollute your mind with deceitful, vengeful, filthy thoughts, you are grieving the Spirit of God. Now, did you notice in um, Isaiah 63, as our brother Aaron read that? Uh, Just turn back there very quickly. Isaiah 63. I want to set the context of this because it'll help us to understand. In verses 1 to 6, it displays the messianic judgment and his victory as the anointed conqueror. And so you see such phrases as, uh, he's trodden the wine alone from all the peoples, was no man with me. I trod them in my anger. He's the victorious one. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So he's the, the victorious conqueror as Messiah. And then the prophet then focuses on, on God's past goodness to his chosen people, of his loving kindness, his steadfast love, of calling them out of the land of Egypt. In verse 9, it's his presence that was with them to save his people in the wilderness. Exodus 14.30, and the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. But then in verse 10, but, but, all of this goodness, all of this mercy, all of this kindness being delivered, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy, and he fought against them. The presence of God here, uh, as Isaiah puts it, is, 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 is communicated as the Holy Spirit. And this links between these two passages is very significant. Looking back to the Exodus, but the salvation that he gave when he redeemed them out of Egypt. Verse 10, the covenant people of God of the Old Testament rebelled and therefore the spirit was grieved. And Paul has this verse, I'm convinced, in mind as he now draws from this example of the people of God that can fall into such stubbornness, such hardness of heart, such rebellion. He takes that now and he applies it to the new covenant community that you too can grieve the Spirit of God. Do not be like them. 1 Corinthians 10, the whole beginning of the chapter is is contrasting Old Testament Israel to the New Covenant community. So, do not grieve the Spirit of God. In this context, John MacArthur says, the Holy Spirit is sorrowful when Christians lie and when stealing instead of sharing, uh, speaking rotten words, being bitter, instead of building up the body of Christ. Grieving the Spirit of God. There's another place in 1 Thessalonians talks about when we can quench the Spirit, where your joy is sapped. Charles Hodge 
says this, to grieve him is to wound him on whom our salvation depends. Though he will not finally withdraw from those in whom he dwells, yet when he is grieved, he withholds the manifestations of his presence. Do you see what he's saying there? The spirit doesn't come and go. You've grieved me too much. I'm going to go pout somewhere. I'm withdrawing from you and I'm not going to preserve you. No, it's not that. But he withdraws the manifestations of his presence so that it feels to us as though he's departed from us. But we know that he will never finally withdraw. That's our perception and it's the consequences of our sin. But we know that ultimately he will not leave us or forsake us. We hold to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And he loses none of his. Um, Another quote, I believe this is Hendrickson, says, grieve is a love word. You don't grieve people you don't love. He is grieved because we are the objects of the love of the triune God. The God who elected The God who redeemed us, the triune God who brought us to the knowledge of this redemption and regenerated us and came to dwell within us. Think about that. Grieve is a love word. It's a love word. So don't grieve the Spirit of God. What's the motive of why we wouldn't grieve the Spirit of God? Well, turning back to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You are sealed and protected by the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's motivating purpose. And, and this is a, it's a passive heiress. It's something that's happened in the past, but and it's something that's outside of you and from an external source. So God is the one that has sealed you. That's the same term we saw back in Ephesians 1 and verse 13 just some weeks back. Um, it's an indicative, so it's a statement of fact. It's an absolute certainty. You were sealed by the Spirit for the day. Of redemption. The only other two places this word occurs is 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 21. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God has also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And isn't that very similar to the way Paul puts it in that opening paragraph in verse 13, in him, you, after listening to the message of the gospel of your salvation, having believed in him with the Holy Spirit, a promise was given to you as a pledge of our inheritance. And so, what does a seal do? It it, it marks the authenticity of something. It also protects, right, from intrusion. Animals and slaves were branded by their masters to to distinguish ownership. So too, God is distinguishing ownership to his people when he seals us. A wax ring of a a king is a signet ring as a letter would be written, as it would be closed, and there'd be a a drop of wax put on it, and then the signet ring there to, to guarantee its authenticity. And if that seal was broken, you knew that you could not trust it. And the seal that God gives is of the Holy Spirit, implying ownership, implying protection from God himself. Notice what Paul does not do. He does not threaten that do not grieve the Spirit of God or he may leave you ultimately. He doesn't say that, does he? 
No, not at all. He doesn't give those types of threats. Or do not grieve the Spirit of God or you may not be elect or you may lose your salvation. No, but Paul's motivation is that you who have been forgiven so much, how can you grieve the one that's given to you as your comforter? How can you grieve him? He's been given to you as your teacher. He's been given to you to reside on the inside to recall to your memory the promises of God when you're going through these difficult trials that we encounter in, in various forms and various colored trials, as it were, James 1. He comes and he reminds us of the promises of God. He gives us the encouragement that we indeed are the children of God and he will not leave us or finally forsake us. Furthermore, he says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He brings this idea of reminding about the redemption that that we have secured. He he really pointing to that final day of salvation and judgment, that day of the Lord for which we all await. Romans 8.23, and not only this, but, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Redemption is a term that obviously carried lots of uh, weight, um, powerful imagery from the first century in the Roman Empire where there was millions of slaves being bought and sold constantly. They were on on, on the block to be bought or sold, and you could come and buy a slave and redeem that one, and it could become your possession, and then you could set that slave free. And so too, we were formerly enslaved to our sins. We couldn't do anything but sin in our unconverted state. And he comes and he, as it were, releases the shackles and sets us free. Gives us a spirit on the inside with a new disposition, a new desire to please the Lord. Is that perfectly? No. But it's a new desire and that's our earnest longing is to glorify him and to please him. He has set us free. We've been ransomed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that, that cost is such a high cost, isn't it? It's the sinless blood of the second person of the Holy Trinity, the one who lived a perfect life, and yet he says, I will willingly go and lay down my life as a substitute for my sheep. That's how much I love them. That's how much I want to please the Father in every respect. I've come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And I love him, and that's the motivating purpose Love, that predestinating love from before the foundation of the world of electing a people, a particular people. Jesus uses that term in John 6, John 17, throughout, I've come to lay down my life for those whom the Father has given me. It's a distinct people. A people of which he set his love upon from before the foundation of the world. Someday, ultimate redemption will come to us, brethren, And we will be delivered finally and and completely from our sin. Never never more to confess John 1, 9, because we will be with him face to face. And by the way, this this kind of hope is a purifying hope. John states it in 1 John 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not appeared yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Everyone who has this hope 
fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Do you have that hope today? Do you meditate on that hope? Do you spend time thinking about that and and remembering that this life is not all? That we can pray beyond confessing yesterday's sin and and praying for tomorrow's events and today's events, but have a, a global eschatological view of someday I'll be with him and I'll be delivered. I'll never sin again. I'll be in his presence. So don't grieve the Spirit of God. Let that be your motivation because you've been sealed for this great day of redemption. But then thirdly, come with me to verse 31. Put away sinful anger and speech. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. As I read that, I see a bit of a progression of these sins. Beware of the deceptive progression of sin. Notice how he's bringing up things. He's pulling back from verse 26, the anger. He's pulling back from verse 29, the, 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 the foul words of slander and these kinds of things. And so the adage of one sin leading to the other is certainly true. Now the verb that he uses here, to put away, has many nuances and, 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 and ways that it could be described. I think the third definition in BDAG is, the, is a, the appropriate one here. It means to take away, to remove, to seize control without suggesting of lifting up, and to completely remove. For example, it's the verb that's used in John one twenty nine. Behold the Lamb of God, who what? takes away the sins of the world, moves them out of the way. First uh, John 3, 5. And you, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And what is Paul telling us? Paul is telling us that this bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, let it be put away from you. Remove it completely. Seize control of it and remove it. Take it away. And so we are to remove these thoughts and these actions of which he lists here. And let's go through them one by one. And the first is this, bitterness. Bitterness. Let all bitterness be put away from you. Bitterness is a resentment, all manner of, of bitterness. Bitterness can sometimes hide in the lower left corner of your heart or the, or the middle back corner. Or it can hide in certain areas and sometimes it's not always discernible. Bitterness is the opposite of what? Sweetness, right? You know, uh, little Johnny's uh, lemonade stand, you know, uh, you're driving home and, oh, isn't that cute? They've got a lemonade stand. It's warm out there. You go and you pay a, a, a overpriced, but it's for a good cause. You buy the cup and it's like, oh, I think you forgot the sugar, you know? It's very bitter. And that's, that's kind of the idea. It's, it's the opposite of sweetness. This being bitter and sour. And, and brethren, we need to be beware of nursing a grudge whatever that may be in your family in the workplace even in the church of nursing some type of grudge smoldering resentment can can just sort of smolder like a fire that can smolder you know you're camping and and you go somewhere and the fire is kind of almost just smoldering and you wake up and it's still smoldering like it it didn't go out and that's what can happen with this sin and it begins to affect all behavior And some think, oh, well, it's mainly women that fall into bitterness, right? No, we men can fall into bitterness and have this resentment too. 
It, it, it resides on the inside. You, you, you know, I can't look at you and, and say, oh, I can tell that you're bitter just by looking. There's no big bee, a blue bee that flashes on your forehead when you're bitter, right? That doesn't exist. One of the older commentators put it like this. This is a figurative term denoting that fretted and irritable state of mind that keeps a man in perpetual animosity, that inclines him to be harsh and uncharitable opinions of men and of things that makes him sour, crabby, and repulsive in his general demeanor. That's a pretty good definition, isn't it? That's from John 80. People who are bitter often refuse to be reconciled, contrary to the whole dynamic of the body of Christ. And again, like Fanny Crosby and many other examples could be listed, kept herself free from bitterness. Well, the second term we see here is wrath. The NIV has rage. It's like a ventilation, sort of a passionate rage. It's, it's uh, the idea of a short temper and, you know... I haven't heard Massimo say this, but Massimo says, it's in my blood, I'm Italian, right? But you've, how many times have you heard that, right? As, as, a, as a valid excuse. It's not a valid excuse, brethren. And it's amazing how, you know, just picture the um, mom at home and, you know, she's got something on the stove. Dad's going to be home in an hour. Two kids are fighting. The other one says, mom, I got gum in my hair and all of that. And she starts to raise her voice and get a little bit upset. But then the phone rings, and she can answer it and be as pleasant as can be. That tells us that you, you actually do have control over these types of things. You can control yourself. Now, this term here, there's the, the, the word here, wrath, and then anger is the next one. I just want to explain the differences between those two, because it's a little ambiguous. Uh, Barclay is helpful. He says the Greeks de- define thumos, which is this word, to be the kind of anger which is like a flame that comes from straw. Or maybe, too, we don't burn straw much, but newspaper, you know, you're trying to get a fire. We, we actually have a fireplace without a gas starter, so hands and knees and, you know, news. But you put the newspaper down there and you light it, and what happens? It rages for about a minute or two, and you hope something gets, starts in the wood, right? And then it's like gone. And that's the way this term is. Wrath is something that vents quickly, but then quickly comes back down. Whereas the other word for anger, which we'll see in just a moment, is more of a long-lasting, slow-burning, which refuses to be pacified and nurses it with wrath to keep it warm. That was Barclay. And so, let all bitterness, let this wrath, your short fuse or whatever, let that be put away from you. Let all anger be put away from you. This is more of that settled and solemn hostility and Jesus likens this kind of anger to what? The Sermon on the Mount. To murder, right? And so we must be very careful. Spurgeon says anger is temporary insanity. That's a pretty good diagnosis for the mid-19th century, isn't it? Temporary insanity is what anger is. But then he goes on and he, he uses this word Clamor, the NAT, NET version, the NET translation, has quarreling. And this has the idea of croaking. It's a cry of strife. Uh, the verb is crazo, which is, is the, word, the, the, the verb that's used to speak of 
for example, when the demons screeched, you know, it would be that type of word, or, or crying out. And this is the noun that has these negative connotations. It speaks of violent outbursts, a heated verbal exchange. You think of even croquet, it's like the croak of a raven. You know, you hear ravens and how annoying they could be. So you picture the scene. It's, there's a quarrel that's happening, and voices begin to become a little more elevated, a little more elevated, and the hostility is, is brewing as well. And next thing you know, there's maybe screaming at each other. That ought not to be. Let that be put away from you. The next term he gives is slander. It's blasphema in the original, which is often used to speak negatively about God, right? But it could be towards man or God. Psalm 50 and verse 20, you sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. And so we need to be careful. Again, you can see how this is kind of tying back to verse 29, this, these unwholesome words. Slander is always unwholesome words. It's, it's, it's destroying somebody's character. It's backbiting. It's speaking behind their back in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord. It's more of an enduring manifestation of inward anger because you can just kind of allow your mouth to kind of vent some of that anger. And and as you're doing that, that can actually um, deepen, make the anger more deep-rooted. You can picture the, 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 you know, maybe in a, in a marriage, you know, there's, there's some unresolved conflict that happens, um, you know, Sunday night and then Monday morning, you know, the husband goes to work, he's at the office, hey, Bill, how was your weekend? Well, it was great until last night. You know, that wife of mine, da 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 and you begin to berate her, which is slandering her, really, and not giving a balanced perspective. Or to reverse that around, maybe while he's doing that, the wife's at the gym, and Susie asks, well, how was your week? Well, it was great, but that husband of mine from last night, let me tell you, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. No, we, have to, we can't do those kinds of things. That's why we got to keep short accounts. That's why we, we have to deal with our sin quickly and radically. So really, there's two choices. When you feel like you're wronged, and, and keeping with this idea, you either overlook it in love, or you go and you confront that person one-on-one, and you, you address it. Those are the choices. You're not free to become bitter. You're not free to, to just vent with slander. And then last of all, notice what he says here, um, along with all malice, along with all malice. So in case your particular you know, uh, besetting sin doesn't occur under those five headings. He kind of throws this in, which, which just kind of anything with evil intent, right, is what, is what, what that means, with all malice, every form of malice. It's a general term uh, speaking of the root of all the vices. It has a vindictive nature to it. Hendrickson says it's the evil inclination of the mind, the perversity of the disposition that takes delight in inflicting hurt or injury to our fellow men. These sins are provoked by selfishness, brethren. These sins are provoked by thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. We need to remember that really we have no rights. We're guilty sinners before a holy God. And we need to deal with this and, and not allow things to fester. I've told this story before. Um, Robert Stevenson tells the story of two unmarried sisters living in Scotland, and they shared a room together, being a very meager means, and, 
And they had some controversy that became so bitter that they never reconciled and they never worked that out. And so they, they, there was no words, either kind or spiteful. Silence is what reigned. Nevertheless, possibly because of the lack of means, they ended up in that situation. So a chalk line went down the floor. You have that side. This is my side. And they never spoke to each other. And as, as it's told, it's each night, each went to bed listening to the heavy breathing of her enemy. Thus, the two sisters continued the rest of their miserable lives. What folly, right? What folly (laughs) that that, that would lead you to, to become so proud and so arrogant that you would not just humble yourself and say, release me from this. I, I'm dying for fellowship. I want love, two blood sisters, What foolishness, but yet some of you can allow bitterness to reign for weeks and months, long periods of time, resentment. And even in our own church, I know that uh, a handful of people, after getting some counsel um, and, and sharing about how burdened about estranged family members, have taken steps to reconcile. And there's good testimonies in that, that those relationships are restored. They may not be perfect, but at least there's not silence 11 years, haven't talked to them, whatever. Think of the conflicts in your own life, the varied conflicts, maybe uh, parents with children, maybe a husband and wife, maybe that coworker, you know, um, even in the church of, you know, disagreeing with how ministry's done or the choice of the songs or, or you know, why do we do this and why don't we do that? And we, we need to guard ourselves and be careful. We need more of a realization that we have the Holy Spirit and He is the divine agent of reconciliation and unity in the body. Look back earlier in chapter 4, Paul's call for unity here says, walking in a manner worthy of your calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent, diligent, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Being diligent. Does that just sound like, oh, I kind of a little take it or leave it? No, that means make it your purpose and your aim and every bit of your strength to preserve the unity. Well, so far, Paul has commanded us not to grieve the Spirit of God. His motivation is because we've been sealed and redeemed, and we're told to, to put away all of these manifestations of anger. And now, and here's the positive, finally, lastly, to cultivate a compassionate, forgiving spirit. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And this is a, a, an imperative, it's a command, okay? And so when he says, be kind, it's, it's the idea of bringing into existence this tenderheartedness uh, to, become, to, uh, to become tenderhearted towards one another. You can only put off the sins of verse 31 by cultivating the opposite virtues is what he gives you here in verse 32. First of all, Let's look at kindness. It's what is good and proper, speaking of moral excellence, speaking of benevolence. That's really the undergirding thing. Kindness is benevolence. It's like the father in his benevolent spirit giving the son to die for the sins of his people. Romans 2.4, it is the riches of his kindness that leads you to repentance. And so that which is good and virtuous and pleasant and mild with others 
You are like the Father when, you, when we love our enemies, Luke 6.35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Even in times of trial and difficulty, we need to remember this. Jesus on the cross and his pain and suffering and all that that he was enduring took time to be kind and to minister to the thief on the cross or to the thieves on the cross. One responded. Next, to be tender-hearted. In a physical sense, it means having healthy bowels. And the word speaks of the inward organs being the seat, the deep seat of the emotions. And, and that's the, uh, the underlying theme, uh, um, uh, intention here, tender-hearted, um, to uh, be compassionate to others, to be moved quickly to pity and sorrow. Sometimes men have a hard time expressing their emotions, but this is a good thing. The only other occurrence in the Greek New Testament is 1 Peter 3.8. To sum up, all of you are to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, and kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but instead giving a blessing. How much more peace there would be in our families, and our churches, if we were truly cultivating this. But then he moves on to the third term, to forgiveness. To forgive means to freely and unconditionally give grace, to remit a debt paid in full, um, not to bring it up again. To forgive is to give grace, in a sense. And the present tense means we saints should make this a regular practice. What should your forgiveness look like? Wholehearted forgiveness. Complete, generous forgiveness. And eagerly granting forgiveness. Our culture is given to revenge, vindictiveness as a means of justifying sinful anger. Just about every single TV show and and movie that's out there has that whole underlying theme of revenge, let's get back, you know, whatever. And so this is really a neglected theme. People outside and inside the church will sin against you. And we don't have time to, to go through all of the process of seeking forgiveness and granting forgiveness. But just to summarize, one man said, the noblest revenge is to forgive. Thomas Fuller, the noblest revenge is to forgive. So forgiving each other, this is so important because a bitter person can be resentful and reluctant to grant um, forgiveness. And then there's division and lack of unity and even in the context of the church. And so forgiveness brings healing. It liberates to freely forgive. It liberates the one who is forgiven as well as the forgiver. We studied the life of Joseph recently, and look at Joseph's heart of, of, of resting in that God is sovereign, and, 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 and you know, he forgave his brothers. And look at the, the added motivation he gives here. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as... Here's the measure, just as God and Christ also has forgiven you. That's the measure. How much has he forgiven you? Just a little bit? A lot? Every one of your sins? That's the supreme measure. And look down in 5 and verse 2 and walk in love just as Christ loved you. So again, the measure is how much has Christ loved me? That's how I'm to, to walk in love. 
We who have been forgiven so much, how can we hold a grudge and not forget? What foolishness. One man said, release, signed in tears, sealed in blood, written on heavenly parchment, recorded in the eternal archives. The black ink of the indictment is written all over with the red ink of the cross. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. And remember, your sin, right, as a sinner before a holy, sinless God is huge. Why? Because of the party that we're offending and the party that we've sinned against for what, compared to um, one sinner to another is, is on a different level. So to forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you, generously doing that. And forgiveness is, is something that's it's not a feeling, you know? I mean, how many times we talk to people in counseling where, but I just don't feel like forgiving. Don't feel like that. Well, I mean, if there's true, genuine repentance and a seeking of forgiveness, you must grant that. It's, a, it's really it's something that is granted. It's not a, a, a feeling. We read Matthew 18 earlier. And Peter thinking, <laughs> thinking he's rather righteous. How, how often should I forgive? Seven times? And what does Jesus say? No, 70 times, 70 times. And you know the context there. He's forgiven so much, the first slave. And then he goes out and strangles his fellow slave that owed a minuscule amount in comparison. And it says, then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handing him over to the torturers. You see, you've been forgiven a Mount Everest mountain of sin debt. You've been forgiven all of that, a huge amount that you could never repay. And so to hold this resentment and not forgive your, your, your fellow man is folly. It's like a drop in a vast ocean of your own sin. Well, a couple points of um, conclusion, brethren, as we wrap up. What we believe doctrinally, such as Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14 that we studied, all of our spiritual riches, our identity of who we are in Christ, all that we believe doctrinally should affect our practice, how we live that out. Rejoice and meditate on the triune God and even knowing that the Holy Spirit dwells on the inside and you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Have a determination to cut off, to lop off right hands, to pluck out right eyes, to cut off all known sin. A sight of Christ on the cross will cause us to hate our sins when we come to understand that our iniquities put our dearest and best friend, the Lord Jesus, to death. We must hate sin. Spurgeon illustrates it like this. Here is a knife with a richly carved ivory handle, a knife of excellent workmanship. Yonder woman, will suppose, has had a dear child murdered by a cruel enemy. The knife is hers. She is pleased with it. She prizes it much. But how can I make her throw the knife away? I can do it easily, for it is that knife in which her child was murdered. Look at it. There's still blood upon the handle. She drops it as though it was a scorpion. She cannot bear it. She puts it away, she says. It killed my child, oh hateful thing. Now sin is such a hateful thing. We play with it until we are told that it is this sin that killed the Lord Jesus on the cross. 
who died out of love to us, a pure and self-sacrificing love. And then we say, hateful thing, be gone and to get rid of it. I think that's a valid illustration of thinking of your sweet Savior who stood in your stead. How can you tinkle and, and play with sin? Put it away. Put off. Put on. How can you grieve Him who dwells on the inside and has been sent to be your comforter? How unworthy, how wretched conduct that is when you grieve the Spirit of God. Shall we grieve Him whose presence in the soul of heaven and whose absence is a hell of corruption and darkness and misery. True love for the brethren naturally flow from this doctrine, understanding who God is and who we are as a people. The power of the gospel can transform your behavior. Stop saying, I can't stop being angry. I, I, I can't you know, I, I can't get rid of this bitterness or, or how can I ever forgive such and such for that person and what they did? Or my situation's different. I understand all of what Paul's saying, but my situation's different. Put away such folly from your thoughts. Christ has forgiven us so much, brethren. What we need is to understand more of that gospel. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. That's what we need. The Spirit is working in us to make us holy, and so we don't want the Spirit grieved. Determined to live your life for His glory, basking in all the riches of the gospel. Quoting Spurgeon again, I know of nothing which I would choose to have as a subject of my ambition for life and to be kept faithful unto death. If you're here today and you're outside of Christ. You have no strength to obey these gospel mandates. You have no, no strength to obey the law of God. You are guilty, guilty, guilty before him. Bitterness and wrath and clamor and anger are just natural to your makeup because you are outside of Christ. God's solution has been set forth in the gospel. He has sent a Savior, a Savior that died on the cross, that, that bled precious, sinless blood upon the cross as he incurred the Father's wrath upon himself. But you must cast off your sins. You must turn away from your sins and run and embrace Jesus who died for your sins. What you need is a new heart, a heart transplant, because you can't do these things. Oh, you can do some external reformation and maybe guarding your mouth for a season, but if your heart's not changed, your condition is terminal, and you will spend an everlasting, all everlasting life in hell. Repent of your sin, trust in Jesus, and run to him. And a final word to those of us in the faith, let us put off this foul language, let us beware of harboring bitterness. Let us beware of grieving the Spirit of God. Let us make much of Christ. Let us bask in His riches. Let us learn more of what the Trinity has done on our behalf, and it will transform our thoughts and our actions. And above all, keep short accounts with God and with each other. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word and Thank you for this very practical section here, Lord. We do pray that you would forgive us, Lord, where we have been guilty of these things, that we would confess those, Lord, that you would cleanse, that you would, as it were, apply the blood of Christ afresh to us. Lord, we do ask that you would continue to sanctify us, that you would conform us into the image of Christ. 
And Lord, we thank you that you've preserved the unity here for so many years, and we ask, we don't want to presume that in the future, so we ask, Lord, that you would preserve the unity of GBC and the bond of peace. Oh, Lord, how we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.